Father, we do lift up the White family. Um, Lord, I don't know them, but I know that you do, and many here do. They're before my time. Lord, we're grateful for their faithfulness. We're grateful for um, what they have contributed to our church to make it what it is. And uh, I pray for Linda in particular and the other family members that you would be with them during this time. It's so hard to say goodbye to people that we love. Lord, even with the hope that we have, even with the confidence that we have that we will be together for eternity, boy, it hurts. It just hurts. So I pray that you would be very real to her during these days and show yourself to her in new and fresh ways and ways that uh, she hasn't even seen before. And uh, she just sees a different side of you. Be gracious to her. And Father, we pray uh, for our time in the Word today, Lord. I pray that you would, uh, you would enjoy us as we try to make sense out of things that sometimes are complex and sometimes are fun, sometimes are challenging. So walk the road with us today. Pray that your Spirit would be very present with us to help us. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, today we begin a new series. We call it Trouble Brewing. Some of you, uh, Mark and I, are both um, fans of The Far Side. And uh, some of you go back long enough to remember The Far Side, and they had a series called Trouble Brewing. So when two things came together and there's potential trouble on the horizon, like one of his comics shows uh, wolves on one side of a hedge and lambs on the other side of the hedge, and they're looking, kind of smelling each other, trouble brewing. And so we thought we would do have a little bit of fun. We just finished a very serious discussion of uh, sin entitled Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Now we thought we'd move in a different direction and, and look at some passages which often aren't looked at in, uh, the, in churches. Maybe have a little fun with it. So we're going to look at several passages where it appears that one thing is happening and then another theme appears out of nowhere unexpectedly. It's captured by the word meanwhile or now. This is happening. Meanwhile, this is happening. All right? And so it it describes our life. And so there's a bunch of passages. In fact, we had to whittle it down. We looked at several places where where these convergences occurred, and we narrowed it down. We're going to learn several things from this study. One is God is always at work below the surface brewing. Yes, pub intended. Okay, trouble brewing. He's under the surface brewing the solution, and it's often different than what you think, at least initially. Second thing we're going to learn is that Satan accomplishes rather than impedes the work and mission of God. Satan accomplishes the work of God. Every evil spirit, every demon, Satan himself, they have no choice but to obey God and to fulfill the work and mission of God. They accomplish it. Third thing we're going to learn is that sometimes our greatest accomplishments actually represent some of our greatest threats and can lead to failure. We learn that by looking at some of the greats in Scripture, that their greatest accomplishments is just one step away from failure. Pride comes before a fall. So today we're going to start with the story of Deborah and Barak in Judges. Judges chapter 4 and 5. Let me give you just a little bit of background if you want to turn to Judges and follow along. The story of Deborah and Barak occurs in a time of Israel's dark history. Joshua has died. There's no clear leader. Israel is wandering around in the dark and is in chaos. 
In fact, the very last chapter of the book says, uh, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a dangerous time. Not very safe. Um, The book of Ruth occurs during this time. We're going to actually look at Ruth in the next series when we get to the amphitheater. Yes, the amphitheater is coming. Coming up. And so it's a very unsafe time to live. It's a very chaotic time, a very sinful time, a time filled with lots of rebellion, a very dark time. And in the book of Judges, we have a series of cycles that they go through. Here's what happens on these cycles. And they repeat the cycle over and over and over again throughout the book. They rebel against the Lord. So he lets them rebel for some period of time. He then hands them over to an enemy nation. Every cycle is a different enemy nation, by the way. They cry out, so he sends a judge to deliver them, and they return to following him. Then they get comfortable again, and they start to cycle all over again. So every time he sends a nation, it's a different nation. Each of the cycles is a different nation. So in this particular story, God's going to hand them over to the Canaanites under the leadership of King Jaban. So this is in chapter 4, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. See, there it is again. So starting another cycle. Uh, Let's see. So they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead, Ehud was the last judge in Judges 3. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. See how it works? They sinned, they rebelled, so he sent the Canaanites after them. He cruelly oppressed them for 20 years. They cry out for help, and so God's going to respond. That's in the next verse. We'll get to that in just a second. His general, uh, Jabin's general, Sisera, was a cruel man. He oppressed Israel for 20 years. Uh, That's all it took for them to cry out. Sometimes we wonder why God allows evil to exist. Because it takes us a long time to turn to him. Let's just be honest. (laughs) I mean, he's cruel, and it still took him 20 years. And so God said, okay, I'll just let this evil man oppress you for 20 years. Eventually, you're going to cry out. He had a very powerful army of 900 chariots, it says, fitted with iron. He was from Harosheth Hagoyim, literally translated Harosheth of the nations. Okay, that's what the word Hagoyim means, of the nations. This immediately reminds us of a verse way back in the beginning, chapter 2, verse 21. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them, these nations, to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. So Sisera's hometown is kind of a pun. It reminds us that God is fulfilling his promise. He's going to leave the nations there. He hasn't supplied a leader to see what they're going to do. This is a test. Now, you may remember I've talked about, I've used the example of here I am a father and here's a corner in my house and uh, around the corner is my two-year-old. I'm standing there watching my two-year-old. Two-year-old doesn't know I'm there, but they're safe. They're under my protection and will. I get to watch them see what they're going to do. This is what the Lord is doing with Israel. He's testing them. So we are told that God sold them into the hands of the Canaanites. This is a clue as to what's coming with this test. 
The language of cruelty and the 900 chariots conjures up a terrifying picture. The Israelites were not very good warriors. 900 chariots fitted with iron under a cruel leader. So that raises the question, what is God going to do? And how is he going to do it? You see the story beginning to emerge? Okay. Meanwhile, verse 4 says, Now Deborah, you can put meanwhile, Deborah, here comes an emerging story that's surfacing. Meanwhile, we have the first twist in the story. Deborah, a woman and prophet, is judging Israel during this time. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidot, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Literally, it says, to have their uh, to receive their judgment. So she's judging Israel. Uh, some of your translations, it says, the NIV says she was leading Israel. It gives a footnote, judging. That's the way it's normally translated throughout the book. Some of your translations do say judging Israel. So she's judging Israel. She's a prophet and a judge. She's in charge of Israel. She's the supreme commander. She's making all the decisions here. And, um, and then the people would go up to receive their judgment. Now, literally it reads, and some of your translations actually say this, now Deborah, a woman, a prophetess. The NIV, I'm not sure why, uh, removes the woman part. says, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidot. But some of you, depending on what translations you use, will highlight that, that the author is letting us know this is a woman, just in case we were confused about that. And uh, that becomes very important in the story in just a moment. The author emphasizes the leadership and authoritative role that she has. He says, and this is unusual for all of the other judges, she holds court. She's judging Israel. Um, They would go up to receive their judgment. Uh, She's a prophet, and she's a woman. The Bible doesn't tell us why she is judging Israel, why a woman is judging Israel. It doesn't give us that information, but it gives us some clues that I think will help us maybe discover that as we bring these stories to the surface. We're faced immediately with the question of how such a woman, especially at this time in history, could possibly thwart the powerful Sisera and his chariot force. 900 ironclad chariots. Israelites didn't have that. How on earth are they going to thwart that? And she being a woman. In other words, Deborah seems like an unlikely candidate for the task of national deliverer, especially given the emphasis on men throughout the book of Judges. In every other case, the men are exalted. They're the ones in charge. They're the ones with the testosterone to go out and get it done. But here we have a woman. It becomes important. Nowhere else before or after this do we find a woman functioning in such a leadership position in Israel. So the message she receives from the Israel, uh, I mean from the Lord, is a divine command. Verse six: She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, that's the northern part of Israel, and said to him, "The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you: Go take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands." So she receives directly from the Lord this divine command. Barak is given no option to obey, but he doesn't. Verse 8, Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. That's a conditional clause. Now, 
my experience in looking at the scriptures is it's always dangerous to say no to the Lord. And that's what he does. So she says, she kind of rescues him, certainly I will go with you, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. So he answers God's command with a conditional sentence, and not only that, surprise, surprise, he demanded the support of a woman. She's in charge. God had just given him assurance of victory. Barak's hesitation is inexcusable. Inexcusable. This isn't even a matter of faith. It's like Gideon. You know, it's really interesting. All the way through the scriptures, no one ever misinterprets God. If you study the Gideon carefully, he understood exactly what God wanted. He just didn't want to do it. Jonah, he knew exactly what God wanted. He just didn't want to do it. In other words, God is clear in his commands. So Deborah's reply informs Barak that his weak faith will result in the loss of glory. That glory will go to a woman. This is one of the great and intriguing stories of the ancient world. Suddenly, out of nowhere, the story is suspended. Verse 11. Now Haber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great Z, uh, the great tree Zanamim near Kadesh. What's that got to do with the story? So, out of nowhere, the storyline is suspended with the introduction of Haber the Kenite. If you were reading this story in the ancient world, immediately questions would have popped to the surface. Because way back in Judges 1, verse 17, here's what we read. Then the men of Judah... uh, Verse 16. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, who was a Kenite... He went up from the city of Palms with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near the Arad. The Kenites were friends with the Israelites. So right out in the the middle of the story, now Hebrew, who's a Kenite, he left the other Kenites. He pitched his tent by this other tree. So that raises the question, Does his actions favor the Israelites or not? What's going to happen? We've got these two stories. You've got this evil, oppressive ruler with 900 chariots built of iron, powerful. And you've got this woman leading with a general under her who's very hesitant, doesn't want to follow the Lord. And then in the middle of that, you have this Kenite who's a friend who decides to go the other direction. See the problem? What's going to happen? How is the Lord possibly going to resolve this? The story resumes in verse 12 with Sisera preparing for battle. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Hasheret Hagoyim, his town, to the Kishon River, all of his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. The storyteller wants you to understand this is a powerful army. He keeps repeating that. 900 chariots fitted with iron. What's going to happen? Chapter 12. So Deborah commands Barak to go into battle. Verse 13, remember he's hesitant. So uh, verse 14, uh, Deborah said to Barak, go, 
This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? He just said that was going to happen. So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advice, the Lord routed, I mean, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. It doesn't tell us right here how that happened. We'll see that in just a minute. So Deborah has to command Barak to go. He routes the army. Sisera escapes. He's now running on foot. Verse 17. Meanwhile, something else is happening. Another part of the story. Meanwhile, we now have our second twist in the story. Verse 17. Meanwhile, Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber, Heber the Kenite. We now know the point of the earlier reference to Heber, Heber the Kenite. You see, he had formed an alliance with Jaber, so Sisera thinks he's safe. This is his ally. He thinks he's safe. That leaves us with the question, what is going to happen? How did God make all this happen? Verse 18, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, and come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent. She covered him with a blanket. I mean, she tucks him in. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She gives him a skin of milk. They gave him a drink, covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there? You are to say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picks up a tent peg and a hammer, went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. The Hebrew here is so fun. It just is emphasizing this. He's fast asleep. He's exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple. He's dead. That's the story. That's the story. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, murdered. It's a strong story. It's a strong story. Looks like God's plan is thwarted. Not true. The woman to get the glory is Jael. She usurps Barak as the hero. So you have one woman saying another woman is going to get the glory and Jael is the one that gets the glory. She kills the general. They've already routed the army. Sister is all that's left. The conclusion gives us the point of the story. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaanite, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Okay, that's the story. We have these trouble brewing, these stories all converging, and we don't know how it happened. I have two observations about this story which I think are significant. Um, First of all, Jael, the wife of Heber, the author of Judges goes to great lengths to compare her to Ehud, who's in the last story. He uses uh, similar words, ideas, and here's all the comparison points. 
And I'll show you why this is important in just a minute. So Ehud is in chapter 3, starting in verse 12, and then uh, Shamgar comes in verse 31. So you've got these two men. Both Ehud and Jael make their victims think that they are loyal subjects. In Judges chapter 3, verse 18, after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon, the king, and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. See, King Eglon is the enemy. Ehud is the last judge. So he has a secret message. So both Ehud and Jael make their victims think that they are loyal subjects when they are not. Both Ehud and Jael kill the leader of the enemy in private. Jael does it inside the tent. Listen to what Ehud does in chapter 3, verse 20. Ehud then approached him while he's sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message of God, from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud, who was left-handed, might bring that up because... Left-handed people are pretty cool. He reached with his left hand, drew the sword, which they didn't know was here, because it's not over here, it's over here. He drew it with his left hand and plunged it into the king's belly and kills him. So he does the same thing Jael does. The same Hebrew verb is used to describe Ehud's sword thrust, which is as plunged, and Jael's fatal hammer blow, which it says drove. It's the same Hebrew word. The author is lighting these stories up for a reason. Both Jael and Shamgar, who's in verse 31, used uncon- unconventional weapons to kill their opponents. Shamgar uses an ox goad. Jael uses a hammer and a tent peg. Neither Shamgar nor Jael were Israelites. The author is lifting up this woman and putting her on the same level as uh, these men. And he's doing this on purpose. This leads to the second observation. Um, Chapter 5 is the Song of Deborah. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read a couple of key parts of it. It's It's the only cycle in Judges that has a song. This entire chapter is a song. Deborah and Barak on that day sang this song. And it's a song praising God for what happens. They're excited because God delivered them, but it gives us some clues as to how that would happen. All right. When you, um, if we were to live back at this time, we have a lot of information at this time period of the Canaanite, their mythology, what they thought, what they believed. Their neighbors with the Israelites, and the Israelites continually, continually were intermixed with them. In fact, one of the problems all throughout Israel's history was they kept adopting the, pro- the processes and the rituals of the Canaanites. So it's worth studying the Canaanites and their religion so we can see how it influenced the Israelites. The Israelites, when they read this story, they would read it a little differently than we would. I'm going to read to you some passages out of the song. Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured 
the clouds, they poured down water. Then he goes on talking about the mountains quaking before the Lord, like at Sinai. And so it's just pouring rain. And then in verse 19, he goes a step further. Kings came, they fought. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder of silver. In other words, they lost. That's the whole reason they were coming, was to steal all their silver and gold. And they didn't do that. From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. <clears throat> we have several examples in the ancient Near East where they, even in, even in the Bible, where they picture the, the uh, parts of heaven, the stars and things like that, as being God's messengers. They did God's bidding. They obeyed God. Sometimes they're stars, sometimes they're demons, sometimes they're angels, but they always do God's bidding. Always. Very next verse, the river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, march on my soul, be strong. So there's this picture of this downpour, this water just coming in nowhere, out of nowhere, and the banks of the Kishon River overflow and flood. God is shown to be using nature here in a very powerful way. The song reveals, I think, uh, not alone in this, that, ca- that God's battle with the Canaanites was actually a test of power to determine whether King Javan or God would rule over Israel. He comes in the form of a downpour, a torrential downpour. The river floods, the ground goes muddy. What happens to iron chariots when the ground goes muddy? They're useless. The Israelites by themselves couldn't destroy this army. It's too powerful. But with a torrential downpour, they could. In order to return home, these soldiers of Jabin would have to cross back over the flooding Kishon River. Apparently, it swept them away. Verse 21, the river Kishon swept them away because of the flood. The horses are then pictured as frantically dashing for safety. Verse 22, Then thundered the horses' hoofs, galloping, galloping, so his mighty steeds. They're running away because the, the, the chariots have sunk. They're useless. They're dashing to safety. This is very significant in Canaanite mythology. You see, the Canaanites and the Israelites who had adopted their religion Remember, God is testing them. They believe that the Canaanite god Baal, um, which in your English says Baal, often how we say it, was a true warrior king, that he was the god of fertility and the god of the storm. He's the god who controlled all the storms. And in Canaanite mythology, Baal, with the aid of his goddess Anat, a female god, defeated the chaotic sea and the death gods, the gods of sea and death. He defeated them and took control. Therefore, he maintained order over all the world. He defended his people, and as the lord of the storm, was the source of human fertility. The Israelites knew this myth. We now have plenty of evidence to show they understood it. They knew it, and they believed it. This is the problem, because they were going after other gods. In this particular case, it's the Canaanites. The other cycles reveal the other nations and their religions. Just like the ten plagues of Egypt. The ten plagues are really, as we learned at the Seder, the ten plagues are an attack on the gods of Egypt. This is an attack on the gods of Canaan. 
And guess what we learn? The one true God revealed that He is the Lord of the storm. He controls nature. It's not Baal. He even uses a woman, Jael, in Baal-like fashion. The irony is apparent. The pagan worshipers of Baal and Anat were destroyed by the god of the storm and his female allies or cohorts, Deborah and Jael. That's why in this particular story, it's important that a woman be the judge because God's going to attack the Canaanites and destroy them and undermine their myth. Now we know why the women are significant in the story. You see, God is willing to use whatever it takes, whatever it takes to fulfill his mission. Often we get troubled by demon possession, demon oppression. We learn from several stories in the Bible that God has control over evil spirits and Satan himself. Look at Job. It makes sense if we really believe in the one true God and he is actually sovereign and I believe he is, then he can use all of creation, all of creation to fulfill his will. It could be an earthquake. It could be a flood. It could be an angel. It could be you. It could be a woman as it was here. It could be a man. It could be a demon. It could be Satan himself. We have nothing to fear. Nothing. Because when testing comes into our lives, we shouldn't be afraid of the medium. God's in control of that. The question we should be asking is, what is he doing and why is he using this particular medium to get our attention? So we shouldn't be afraid of anything. Everything in creation is created. Everything. And God uses it at his pleasure to fulfill his his mission, that the whole world come to know him, if that were possible. He wants everyone to know. So here's a question I want to leave you with. What story in your life is occurring in which the Lord is brewing a solution? What story is occurring in your life? It doesn't matter who he's using. Don't shoot the messenger. What story is occurring in your life in which the Lord is brewing a solution and who might be the unusual allies of the Lord? This is a surprise, I convinced to the Israelites, that he would use two women. He did it on purpose because he's trying to defeat Canaanite mythology and women were important in that mythology. It was a necessary part of the story. Don't shoot the messenger. Who is the unusual person that God is bringing? Don't be fooled by our struggles. God really is sovereign. He really is. Father, thank you for uh, this incredible story. One where we can look and see how you control things from heaven. There is no God of the storm except you. There is no God over males and females except you. There's no God over the rivers and the earthquakes except you. There's no God over all of the tests that have come into our life except you, and you only use it for our good. We have nothing to be afraid of. There is no God equal to Satan and demons. There is only you who created them. We are so thankful. Help us, Lord, to recognize when trouble is brewing. 
in our lives, when stories that begin to appear that don't make sense to us from our vantage point, but someday they will because of our confidence in you and your love for us. We pray these things in your son's name because we believe in him. Amen.